think it's always uh, encouraging in God's timing and providence uh, how often the pieces of the service uh, in ways that we couldn't anticipate or plan come together. The news of Cedric's murder and then the song sung by the choir immediately following uh, really go together. And uh, the, the violence that takes place uh, in the lives of so many like Cedric. Um, some, of, some of us here at Calvary, we live uh, in Austin uh, or in other places here in Chicago where that's more common, but most of us, we don't. Uh, we encounter that uh, in ways uh, that can be uh, just shocking in the the truths that were sung by the choir, the, um, uh, that there's a day coming with uh, no more sorrow, no more pain, that Jesus has overcome the grave. This is how, uh, this is the hope we have, right? It's the hope we have in the midst of uh, that kind of news. And it strikes me too that uh, Jesus has told us that we need to love our neighbor. And what does that mean for us as a congregation? What does that mean for us as Calvary, situated where we are here in Oak Park, neighbor uh, to, to the community um, where Cedric was from, where so much of this happens uh, way too often. What does that mean for us to be neighbors? And uh, the 931 basketball program, of course, is one effort of that. But I think we need to continue to pray as a congregation about what it means for us to live uh, as good neighbors, uh, loving our neighbor uh, as a church. Let's turn our uh, thoughts uh, to God's word, um, see what God has to say to us, uh, perhaps even about that. But pray with me uh, this this morning. Father, thank you uh, for sending us Christ. Thank you that he is the hope of the world. Thank you that in the midst of great uh, loss and tragedy, uh, there is a hope that transcends it. Even if we can't uh, make sense of it all, Lord, we know that you can somehow make sense of it in Christ, and so we just have to trust in that. But we want to also uh, be used by you uh, to be agents of your grace. And so, God, give us wisdom, whether it's individuals here in this congregation, whether it's uh, as a congregation. Give us wisdom of what it means to be uh, the good neighbor uh, to those that are in need, um, to be the good Samaritan Uh, that cares uh, for you, for those that are uh, in positions of of suffering and pain on your behalf, Lord. So give us wisdom for that. Lord, we want to uh, listen to your word and hear what you have to say to us this morning. So as we turn our thoughts to uh, the teachings of your son, pray that you would, even in the spirit of this parable, that you would make us like the good soil able to receive uh, and to understand the words uh, that you would speak to us and that we would not just hear the words, but that we would bear fruit. So God, we pray that you would use uh, this morning to that end. Be with Cedric's family, uh, be with his parents, with his siblings, with his extended family, with his friends. Lord, minister your peace and your grace in ways that uh, go beyond any human efforts, By your spirit, we pray that you would uh, make your uh, grace known to them. We pray for this young man as well that's still clinging to life. We pray for uh, mercy in his life, Lord. We pray for your mercy in the lives of so many 
that face this uh, situation day in and day out. And so God, we just pray for your grace. In your son's name we pray, amen. Uh, some of you have asked uh, how Katie is doing. I want to pass on uh, good news uh, in that regard. Her surgery was on Thursday, and everything that they hoped would happen in the surgery happened, and so it went very well. She's home now and recovering. Uh, it is a, uh, quite a surgery to recover from, and so your continued uh, prayers are certainly appreciated uh, for her and for the family. And uh, you know, it's obvious uh, that we need to be praying for Katie, but probably Pastor Todd is wandering around the house like a deer in the headlights, not knowing what to do with himself with Katie down. So be praying for him as well, and uh, just uh, that the whole family would be ministered to. No, I was with Todd uh, all day on Thursday down at the hospital. He's doing very well as well, but obviously carrying uh, the burden now of caring for the family. So a couple weeks for sure, uh, minimal of bed rest, and so uh, we'll continue to pray for Katie. And also, uh, I don't know if we've um, announced this yet, but we had had a June 3rd uh, going away service for Todd and Katie, but that is being moved to the 10th because of uh, the surgery and the timing of it. So um, I don't know if we've clarified the date change or not yet, but if we haven't, now you know, and uh, mark your calendars for that. It'll be June 10th in the evening. All right, so we're picking up and continuing on in our sermon series here in Matthew, and we are launching into Matthew 13, which has already been read for us. In this sermon, Jesus tells one of his more famous parables, the parable of the sower. If you've uh, been around church for a while, grew up in Sunday school, uh, or you've read the Gospels, this will be one of the parables that, that sticks out to you, no doubt. And a parable about a man planting seed on different kind of soils and receptivity to the gospel message. And our, and our focus this morning is not going to be on the parable itself, uh, but rather focusing on Christ's explanation for why he spoke in parables. So Jesus here in the midst of our passage, he not only tells the parable and explains the parable, but he then takes right in the middle, kind of third of our passage that we've read, he, he explains why it is that he speaks in parables. And the fact that Jesus spoke in parables has some pr- pretty profound implications for our individual sense of purpose and also our corporate sense of purpose as a congregation. And so I want to... Uh, I want to focus in on this uh, particular aspect of this passage, this, this explanation that Jesus gives for why he speaks in parables. Now, to get ourselves into the text, I think it might be helpful uh, to do a little bit of a recap of chapter 11 and particularly chapter 12. We've preached through uh, bits and pieces of 11 and 12. We haven't focused on all the content that was there. And so it'd be helpful to get a little bit of of some context there in 11 and particularly chapter 12 to give us an understanding of what's going on in chapter 13 and why Jesus is speaking in parables. In the early chapters of Matthew, particularly, contained particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is openly teaching the crowds, and we see the sorts of things that he's saying to the crowds. But beginning in Matthew 11, and then most uh, pointedly in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus begins meeting increasing resistance to his ministry. So he's been publicly teaching in his early days, and he's a phenom. The crowds are coming to him, and everyone is loving him. But 
as we start moving into Matthew chapter 11 towards the end and then also into chapter 12, Matthew begins to unfold for us that Jesus is meeting resistance. And he's meeting resistance in particular from the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the Jewish religious leaders of the day. They are the kind of the right wing of the Jewish religious leaders. They're very influential. They uh, are well-liked generally by the, by the populace, by the crowd. And their shtick, as it were, is that they are masters of the Jewish law, of the law of Moses. And over the uh, ages throughout Israel's history, the law had kind of ebbed and flowed in terms of its adherence by the nation of Israel. But as we open up the page of the New Testament, there is generally a fairly high regard for the Jewish law amongst the people of Israel. And the Pharisees are the keeper of the law. They are the interpreters of the law. They're the experts in the law. They come up with ways of understanding and applying the law. And so the, the high regard for the law in the Jewish community and the Pharisees' mastery of the law then places the Pharisees in a high position. And it was their a mastery of the law that gave them their mastery over the people. So they were leaders among the people because of the fact that they possessed the law. Jesus begins to point out in ways to them, in sometimes subtle and not so subtle ways, that they have come to love their place of prominence more than they love the law itself and ministering to the people. And so there begins to be some, come some tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, if we're, they were perfectly honest with themselves, which they are not, are frankly a bit envious of Jesus' teaching. They're envious of the way that he is attracting crowds to himself. Here comes along this carpenter's son with no formal training in their schools, no adherence to their greatest teachers, who is outstripping them all in terms of influence and seeming authority. And it's worse than that because Jesus is teaching not like they teach, but he's teaching with his own authority. See, the Pharisees came when they proclaimed the law and, uh, and acquired authority, it was because they mastered the law. And so they could say, I say to you because such and such is said in the law. But when Jesus comes, he doesn't appeal to the law as the basis of his teaching and authority. Jesus taught as one who had his own authority, not merely as an interpreter of the law like the Pharisees. He taught as though he were himself a lawgiver a new Moses bringing his own law. And he didn't quote scriptures to make his point. He made his points as if they were scripture. It's contrast with the Sermon on the Mount and the way that the Pharisees taught. Because when, when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, it was very vexing to the Pharisees. In fact, it's still vexing even to some modern interpreters, the way that Jesus approached the law. You remember what he would do? He would say, you've heard that it was said, and then he would quote something from the law of Moses. You've heard that it was said such and such and such and such. And then what would he say? But I say to you, right? You can imagine how that went over with the Pharisees, right? So like you've heard that it was said such and such by the law of Moses, the greatest of our prophets, but I tell you this. He's putting himself over and above the law of Moses, and therefore he's outstripping the Pharisees. They cannot keep up with it. The crowds are eating it up. They love it. And so all the crowds are coming to Jesus. The Pharisees are getting jealous. And so in Matthew 12, we see that they have set themselves now purposefully against Jesus and are planning to, they're making plans to figure out how to destroy him. That's what Matthew tells us in chapter 12. All right, so now there's opposition to Jesus. This is where the, the plot thickens, as it were. 
So in Matthew 13, we have a, we have a shift in Jesus' teaching ministry, right? Up until this point, it's been a little bit different. But when you hit Matthew 13, he begins for the first time to speak almost exclusively in parables, when he's talking to the crowds. The whole of Matthew 13, uh, the majority of Matthew 13, is an encapsulation of all of the parables that Jesus would tell when he would be out talking to the crowds. So we move into our passage now where Jesus tells this first parable. Uh, but even in, in verse 3, we see in, in 13.3 that he told them many things in parables saying. So the parable of the sower is just one of the parables that he told that day when he was teaching. Right? The other parables you can see contained here in the rest of Matthew 13, and no doubt there were parables even beyond the parables that are contained here in Scripture when Jesus was teaching. So our passage is divided into three main sections. You have the telling of the parable of the sower in verses 1 through 9, and then you have the explanation for the parables, like why is Jesus teaching in parables in 10 through 17, and then you have the explanation of the parable itself, the parable of the sower in verses 18 through 23. We're going to focus primarily, again, on this middle section, verses 10 through 17. So Jesus walks out of the house, he sits by the sea, and the crowds come flocking to him. It would have been customary in those days for the teacher to sit and those that listen to stand. I think we should get back to that. I'll just <laughs> see how that goes next week. We'll plan that out. But in any case, Jesus sits down by the sea to signal that he's ready to begin teaching. And so everyone comes around him but uniquely, this time, Jesus doesn't launch into the Sermon on the Mount. He begins telling stories. So he tells a parable, then he tells another parable, then he tells another parable, tells another parable, story after story, and then he gets up and he leaves without explaining any of the meanings of the parables. And no one really knows what he's talking about. It would be a bit like... So last, last time I preached, I told a story about piano lessons. You may recall that story. I've told other various stories throughout. I told a story once about how I single-handedly tried to stop the theft of my carpet cleaning equipment at the hands of four men. If you missed that story, it was a good one. If you stick around long enough, perhaps you'll get it at some point down the road. But imagine that I came up to preach, and I told four or five stories, and then I walked off. That's a bit like what, what's going on with Jesus, right? He's coming and he's telling these stories, but no one really knows what he's talking about. It's all very interesting, to be sure, and it all sounds very profound, no doubt, and it surely means something, but what exactly it means, no one knows. Not even the disciples know what he's talking about. So Mark makes this most explicit in his gospel, but in Mark's gospel, the disciples come back after Jesus is done telling all the parables, and they're like, hey, what, like, what does that mean? And then Jesus explains the parable to the disciples. Not only this parable, but all the parables to the disciples. Jesus has to explain the meaning of all of these parables to the disciples. So the disciples are puzzled by this new direction in Jesus' teaching. They don't get why he's doing it. And so we see in verse 10 that they come to him and they ask, why are you speaking in parables to the people? This, isn't, uh, this does not seem good pedagogy, Right? No one knows what you're talking about. We thought you're supposed to be this great teacher. And here's the surprising thing that I think is often lost on casual readers of the Bible. Jesus tells his disciples in 13, 10 through 15 that he is speaking in parables in order to hide and obscure his message. That's interesting. 
I'm talking to them in parables so that they won't know what I'm talking about. That's essentially Jesus' answer to the disciples. And the disciples, no doubt, were a bit puzzled by this. And this is such a counterintuitive way of thinking about parables and thinking about Jesus' teaching ministry that even as we read the text, we almost can read the text thinking, well, I don't know what that meant, but I'm sure that's not what he doesn't mean that. I mean, of course, the use of parables we all think, is to make stories more plain, to illustrate points, to drive home the points that we're making. We often can think if we hadn't read this text, and maybe if this would even be the case before we read this text this morning, if someone were to ask you, why did Jesus teach in parables, you might have been inclined to say, well, Jesus taught in parables because he's such a good teacher. He knows that stories like really drive home the point. But that's not, in fact, at all the reason he's talking in parables, because parables work like that as illustrations of larger points. But if you don't make the larger point, and all you have is the illustration, and it's kind of vague about some guy planting stuff, like what does that really mean? His intent in telling parables, Jesus says, is not to winsomely illustrate his message. It's not to drive home his point like a good sermon illustration. Jesus is speaking in parables because he doesn't want the crowds to understand him. That's why he's speaking in parables. And it's so counterintuitive that we almost can't grasp it, but when we look at the way that Jesus works out his ministry throughout the Gospels, we see that this is actually in keeping with how Jesus conducts himself in all of his ministry. Jesus did not publicly proclaim his identity as Israel's Messiah or the Son of God. He would tell his disciples this, but he never directly said to the crowds that he was Messiah let alone that he was son of God. He would refer to himself in kind of vague illusions, son of man, for instance, or the son. And it, and it left, it kind of hinted at, it implied, but it never actually, never actually declared himself to be the son of God, always indirect. And you remember Peter's confession, the great confession. Jesus has been referring to himself as the son of man. Everyone's wondering like what exactly that means. And so Jesus says to to the disciples, who do you think the Son of Man, or who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples say, well, some people think that the Son of Man is Elijah, some people think he's John the Baptist. And Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you think the Son of Man is? Or in other words, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, you're God's Son. And what is Jesus' response? He says, you're right, but then what does he say? Do you remember? He says, don't tell anybody. He solemnly charges them not to say that he is Messiah. Or how about the transfiguration? Up on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's probably no more clear demonstration in all the Gospels about Jesus' messianic divine identity. He takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain with him, and there they are on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before them. He's glowing white, and the God's voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What more could be said about Jesus' divine identity and messiahship? But after that moment, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody what you've seen. Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. He silences them. Or how about Jesus' healing ministry? You turn over to, you don't have to turn there, I'll turn there. But in Mark chapter 1, you see uh, Jesus' healing ministry. And sometimes we can have this idea that Jesus was running around healing people because he wanted to authenticate the message that he was Messiah. 
as though what Jesus was about was proclaiming himself to be Messiah and then healing people to prove it. But Jesus isn't proclaiming himself to be Messiah, and he's certainly not healing people to prove it. Listen to this in Mark's gospel. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But of course, what did the man do? But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. There's another account in Mark's gospel set later in it where a man who was born deaf comes to Jesus and he wants to be healed. And Jesus, you can almost get the sense Jesus doesn't want to do it because of this very thing, right? He's going to have to leave the town. And so Jesus takes him away privately off to the side and he and he heals him, but, but it's a very interesting account because Jesus, before he heals him, he sighs. He's like, oh, be healed. And then boom, he's got to leave town, <laughs> just like that, right? Because he knows as soon as I heal this guy, and he tells the guy, don't tell anyone. And of course, the guy runs and he tells everybody, and Jesus has to leave the town with his disciples, right? So Jesus is not healing people in order to authenticate some, his messianic identity, He's not healing people to attract crowds. In fact, if he can, he heals anonymously like he did at the pool of Bethesda, where he healed a guy and never even told the guy who he was. And everyone's like, who healed you? And he's like, I don't know who healed us. You know, some guy came by, right? So he's, he's hiding himself. He's hiding his identity. But because of the power of who he is, he can't, you can't hide it entirely, right? So the crowds are flocking around him. Or how about when he casts out demons? When he casts out demons, the demons say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And what does Jesus do when they start speaking that? He says him to, tells him to be quiet, right? You're not to speak. Jesus doesn't want the disciples saying who he is. He doesn't want the demons saying who he is. He doesn't want anyone saying who he is to the crowds. Jesus did not run around trying to convince everyone he was the Messiah. In fact, quite the opposite. He was hiding it. So surprising though it may seem, Jesus did not want the crowds to know who he was. And he spoke to them in parables for the same reason that he healed in private whenever he could, for the same reason that he told the demons and the disciples to be silent about his true identity, he was trying to avoid provoking prematurely the confrontation that would inevitably come when he openly declared his true identity. The first time that Jesus declares himself openly to the masses that he himself is the Messiah, when he says it without subtlety, he doesn't kind of veiled reference, is on Palm Sunday. He rides into Jerusalem. He accepts the praises of the, of the crowds who declare him to be Messiah. He rides in on a donkey. and He is openly saying, I am Israel's Messiah. And within a week, he's crucified. So he knows that as soon as he starts to declare who he is, it will provoke the confrontation with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders and the powers that are opposed to him. And so he doesn't, he's not ready yet to provoke that conflict. He's got another agenda in mind, right? He's not ready to provoke the conflict, and so he's hiding his identity. Jesus spoke in parables to hide his identity because he wanted to be alone with his disciples, 
He's constantly taking them out into the wilderness, away from the crowds, trying to get space because he wants to teach them. He teaches the crowds when they come to him, and he teaches the crowds in many ways, I think, as an example to his disciples of what they will be doing one day, but his primary point is not to minister to the masses. His primary point is to minister to the disciples. It was to them, he tells them in our passage here in verse 11, that he had come to reveal the secrets of the kingdom. This phrase, the secrets of the kingdom, sometimes it's translated in other passages as the mysteries of the kingdom. Things before that had not been revealed, Jesus says. Things that righteous men and women of old had longed to see, but did not see. Jesus is now conveying these hidden truths to his disciples. Who Jesus was, what he had come to accomplish, the redemption for God's people, and the disciples, not the crowds, were the graced beneficiaries of these mysteries. Now, of course, they were no more likely to understand what Jesus was talking about than the crowds. That's one of the points, I think, that Matthew is making here with this telling of the parable. They don't know what Jesus is talking about either. That's the whole point of the parable of the sower. It has to be given to you to become good soil. You don't get born as good soil. You don't come into the world as good soil. Jesus has to take you behind the curtain and explain it to you before you're good soil. And so the disciples don't know what's going on except that Jesus has chosen to reveal to them the secrets of the kingdom. So I always thought you might be saying to yourself that Jesus had been sent by God to be the hope of the world. Why was Jesus so tight-lipped about the very message that God had sent him to proclaim? And here's the surprising thing. Jesus wasn't sent by God to preach the secrets of the kingdom to the world. Jesus was sent by God to prepare his disciples to preach the secrets of the kingdom to the world. Turn back in Matthew to, to chapter 10. A number of weeks ago, we, I preached out of this passage, and Jesus here is sending his disciples on mission as a precursor to the great commission that he will give them at the end of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 10 is kind of the dry run. It's the trial run. It's, 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 the, it's the first kind of toe in the water that Jesus is sending his disciples out. They're going to go out and come back to him, and then they'll review, as it were. They're getting ready for when Jesus is going to send them out in Matthew 25. And as Jesus is sending them out in Matthew 10, he gives them instructions that not only relate to the mission that they're about to go on, this dry run, but also to the great mission that will happen at the end of Matthew 25. But look what he says to them as part of his instructions in 10.27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. When Jesus sends his disciples out on mission at the end of Matthew's gospel, his mission for them is to proclaim what he has been whispering to them, to make known from the housetops what he has told them in secret. Jesus' teaching ministry had a single primary aim, to proclaim the mysteries of God's kingdom to his disciples so that his disciples could proclaim the mysteries of God's kingdom to the world. And so they did, as we read through the book of Acts, and so they have continued to do so all the way to you and I today. The great truths of the universe that Jesus conveyed to his disciples, 
who then conveyed to their disciples, to their disciples, to their disciples, to their disciples, all the way to you and I today, these great truths of the universe that have been kept hidden, as Jesus says in 1335, that have been kept hidden from the foundations of the world, have been revealed now to you and I today. To us has been given the secret knowledge of life and death, of rebirth, eternity, the true knowledge of God. Atheism has been around since the dawn of time. You go all the way back into the early annals of Western culture, and you can always find atheism. But atheism has always been a minority report. It has never been the dominant in any age all the way up into the present. The vast majority of human beings throughout history in any age, including our present, have always known that we cannot live without a knowledge of the gods or God. There must be some transcendent truth that makes sense of this world. And every mythology, every ancient and modern philosophy, every religion has scratched around in an effort to discover the truth that Jesus has revealed to us as his disciples. How privileged we are. We possess the Promethean flame, the fountain of youth, the secret fire. To us has been revealed the very oracles of God. We have come to behold in the face of Jesus the very meaning of the universe. We have come to know and understand the secret that the God who was before all things has an eternal son through whom he has made all things and that this son took upon himself the flesh that he himself had made and through his death and resurrection has graced this flesh with his own divine spirit so that all who believe in him can have the eternal life of God. What a privilege to know how privileged, how fortunate, how undeservingly honored we are that God in Christ has revealed to us the mystery of eternal life. We may not know everything, but we know this one thing. And this one thing is the one thing that matters more than all things. But Jesus didn't give it to us just to know. How great the responsibility we have as those who steward and serve the secrets of God. What Jesus proclaimed in obscure parables, we are to speak clearly and openly. What Jesus has whispered in the dark, we are to proclaim in the light. Jesus has given us this knowledge of himself at great cost. We've received it freely, to be sure, but he wasn't able to give it freely. He paid for it with his life's blood and his broken body. And God forgive us for staying silent. God forgive me for staying silent, for speaking indirectly and obscurely and in parables and thus following the example of Jesus at the only place he doesn't want us to follow his example. Right? The only place he doesn't want us to follow his example is the place that we're so prone to follow his example. And we beat around the bush, and we speak indirectly, and we don't want to offend. But Jesus has asked us to take this hidden knowledge that he has bought with his blood and given to us at great cost to bless the world. And Christ forgive us for bearing this precious knowledge in the ground like the lazy servant in Matthew 25. 
you don't know about the lazy servant in Matthew 25, go ahead and read about the lazy servant in Matthew 25. It doesn't go well for him, I will tell you that. It's spoiler alert there. But Jesus' words invite us this morning, I think, to reflect anew on what we possess. Because I think we can take it for granted, right? We can take it for granted. But we possess something so amazing and profound. But even more importantly, Jesus' words invite us to think about how we are stewarding it. Jesus didn't come to preach the gospel. He came to prepare us to preach the gospel. We're in the middle of this Antioch process, and hopefully you're tracking along with that, and we uh, are working our way in the month of May through a four-week study looking at the ways that our unique giftings, our unique abilities, our unique, our unique passions come together to inform how we engage with the mission of God. And it strikes me that sometimes maybe we can get the cart before the horse in this. Because if we're not clear on what the mission of God is, then all of our context and our giftings and our passions don't really, they're not funneled toward the thing that they need to be funneled towards. We're not doing the Antioch process to figure out what the mission of God is. Jesus has already told us what the mission of God is. We know that. The mission of God is to proclaim from the housetops what Jesus has whispered in the dark. That's the mission of God. What we're doing the Antioch process for is to figure out how we engage in that mission. Each of us have our own unique context, our own unique giftings, our own unique passions. So we're going to engage in the mission differently. But we can't lose sight of the fact that the mission is the same for all of us. So I don't know what the mission is for you as an individual. You need to be thinking and praying about that. And we're trying to discern together what the mission is for us as a church. Not the mission, our, our unique way of engaging the mission, rather, right? We know what our mission is. How do we engage the mission? How do we use the gifts and the skills and the context that God has us in individually and has us in corporately for making best use of these things for getting after the mission? We need to keep praying towards that end. We need to keep thinking about the opportunities that are before us. How do we engage in the mission of God? But not losing sight, clarity on what the mission of God is. To proclaim the truths that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. To the world that so badly needs to know it. So let me close by giving three action steps this morning. The first is this. Bring to mind one person who occupies a place among the crowds. Today, you're a believer. You are one who has beheld and received the secrets of the kingdom of heaven that have been hidden from the crowds. Think today of one person. If you're very ambitious, you can think of two people. But you think of at least one person who you know that sits in the place of the crowds, that has not yet received the gospel, that it hasn't be become uh, uh, informed by Christ and his spirit, the power of his spirit, about who Jesus is. Identify that one person. And then going back into Matthew 10, where we were a few weeks ago, where Jesus says to consider the fields that are ripe for the harvest. Consider the fields that are ripe for the harvest. What's the first thing that Jesus told his disciples to do when they considered the fields? Do you remember? What was it? 
I preached this sermon, so if you don't answer it properly, I'm going to feel very disillusioned with myself. What is it? He told him to what? To pray. He told him to pray. That's right. He says, consider the fields, consider those who are outside the kingdom. The first thing you do is you pray. You pray that God would send someone to that person to reveal to them the truth of who Christ is. So identify someone, maybe identify two someones, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a family member, a classmate. Identify someone that you know needs the truth of the gospel and then pray that God would send someone to them with the knowledge of who Christ is. And then what do we see immediately following Jesus instructing the disciples to consider the fields, to pray that someone would be sent? He sends them. So be prepared to be sent as the answer to the prayer that you are praying. Identify one person that you can pray for. Pray earnestly and daily that God would reveal himself to that person. Perhaps write a post-it card, put it on your car. You commute to work. Every day you pray for that person. Make a, a reminder in your phone, an alert that bings at a certain time of the day that reminds you to pray for this person. Something perhaps on your nightstand uh, before you go to bed each night. But pray earnestly that God would reveal himself to that person and then be open to the ways that God will almost certainly direct you to be part of the answer to that prayer. God has called us to steward his mysteries in a way that reveals them to the world. I'm going to close by saying, if you today are here as part of the crowd, you've not yet embraced the mysteries of the kingdom, and you sit, as Pastor Todd so well put it last week, as part of the family but not part of the family. You're those that are listening to the parables of Jesus without understanding, and, and you are, as it were, on, you're in the crowds, but you're not behind the curtain with the disciples. Jesus says this in verse 12, let it be sobering. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. That's the disciples. They had the parables, but they needed more, and Jesus gave them more. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If you sit here as part of the crowds, Jesus is saying to you, you can't stay forever as part of the crowd. What you have, the little you have, can grow and become something like what the disciples have. You can embrace the mystery of the kingdom. But if you do not, the little you have will be taken away. You cannot ride the fence forever. You cannot stand with one foot in and one foot out. To always be part of the family, but not part of the family. To have the knowledge, but not have the knowledge. At some point, Jesus will call the question. And when he calls the question, if you're on the wrong side, you lose what you have. So I would implore you to not wait, not delay, not think about it later, not come back tomorrow, not come back next week, but even today, to cross the threshold from being part of the crowds to being one of his disciples, to humble yourself like a child, to acknowledge that you need Christ in your life, that he alone possesses the secrets of eternal life and the mysteries of God's kingdom, to throw yourself on his mercy. He will receive you, and he will grant you the eternal life that he has come to purchase with his blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent Christ
When we were lost in darkness, we all must humbly acknowledge this morning, Lord, that we, we are like the disciples, listening to parables and not able to make sense of them. We have nothing in and of ourselves that allows us to scale up to heaven and bring you down, but you and your mercy have given us Christ and you have revealed yourself to us taken us behind the curtain and spoken your words into our ears and you have given us new life, God. Thank you for that. And God, I pray that you would help us to steward this life responsibly and with a full recognition of what it is that we possess, that we would not beat around the bush or be indirect, that we would not fall into speaking cryptically or in parables, but that we would speak openly and confess the truth of who you are and who you can be in the world. And God, for those that are here today who stand in the crowds, who have been listening to Jesus, who are intrigued by him, who find him compelling but have not yet crossed the threshold into discipleship, may you, Lord, convict them of the need to do so. May they move forward in that and not be caught in a place where they lose the little that they have. God, give them grace for that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.